Thank you for joining us today. At ResLife, our mission is to develop committed followers of Jesus Christ to reach the world. Our content is created to equip and empower you in God's purpose. We hope you enjoy this message. Amen. Well, while you're standing, turn to somebody and say, tonight we're going to get something brand new from the Word of God. Tell somebody we're going to get something brand new from the Word of God. Amen. Amen. So good to be with you tonight. I just need a little bit more sound on these monitors if, just for me, if you could do it for me. We're so glad to be here tonight. Denise, would you stand? So glad that my precious wife is always with me. We are in the United States one more week, and then we go home to Russia. And we're so excited to get home. But it's good to be here with you tonight, and it's really a privilege to stand in the pulpit of this church. You know, it's a great honor to speak the Word of God. It's a great responsibility. And I want to thank you for listening, and let's pray together and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us tonight. Father, we thank you for this time in the Word of God. Lord, we pray that tonight I would be a channel for the voice of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we ask you to take these scriptures, walk us into the Bible tonight until we feel it, until we're changed by it. Cause these verses to burn in our heart and come alive for us. And Lord, tonight we pray for our friends, we pray for our families, we pray for our partners around the world. Lord, we pray that the Word of God will work in their hearts, especially in these times. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen, amen. Well, before we get into the Word, I want to tell you about two books. One is called Signs You'll See Just Before Jesus Comes. I don't like the way that most prophecy teachers teach because I think they use sensationalism, and I think they scare people. And God is not in the business of scaring people. He doesn't scare us, but he does prepare us. So I took a look at the scriptures to logically see what did Jesus really say about the signs that we would see before he returns. And I wrote this book, and really it is a riveting book. You will love this book, and we just have a few of them, but I wanted to tell you about it. And then the next book I'm going to tell you about, we don't have any left. They're all sold already, but you can get it on Amazon. If you go to my website, you can't get it because we're not even offering it yet. But you can get it on Amazon. And the name of the book is called How to Keep Your Head on Straight in a World Gone Crazy. Do you ever feel like we're living in a crazy world? Well, how do you keep your head on straight in a world gone crazy? And actually, this is what I'm going to speak to you about tonight. The reason I have this book up here is because tonight I'm going to be reading just a little bit from it. But tonight, I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24, and tonight we're going to begin in verse 3. And when we come to Matthew chapter 24, Jesus has gone with his disciples over to the top of the Mount of Olives. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives. Has anybody here ever been to Israel, been to Jerusalem? Well, then you know that from the Mount of Olives, you have a panoramic view of the ancient city of Jerusalem. It is a magnificent view, a very prophetic place on the earth. And as Jesus was sitting there with his disciples, they privately began to ask him questions that they didn't feel they could ask in front of other people. And so now this leads us to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3 to the questions which they asked Jesus. And as he sat up on the Mount of Olives, I'm reading from the King James Version, the disciples came unto him privately saying, tell us when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. But look in verse 3, Jesus tells us they asked specific things. First of all, they said, tell us when. Everybody say when. when. Then they said what. Everybody say what. what. Then they said what shall be the sign. Everybody say sign. sign. Then the end. Everybody say end. end. And the word world. Everybody say world. world. When you look at verse 3, these particular words are very important. If I were you, I would circle each one of them in this verse. The word when, what, sign, end, and the world. But let's look exactly what they were asking. They said, tell us when. When you read this in Greek, it's very concrete. They were telling us exactly when are these things going to happen. And they were talking about the end of the age. Then they asked, what shall be the sign of thy coming? And when you read this in the Greek text, it's very explicit. In fact, in Greek, the word what is the word T, spelled T-I. 
He describes the most minute, minuscule detail. They were really zeroing in. They didn't want broad answers. They wanted specific, exact answers. Exactly what will be the sign of thy coming? The word sign is the Greek word simeon. And it can be translated sign, but let me tell you where this word comes from. This particular word sign was exactly the word that was used by the Greeks and the Romans to describe signs along the road to tell you where you are in your journey. Well, I have signs on the roads. Denise and I live about 12 miles outside the city of Moscow. We live in a village. Our village only has 800,000 people, but in Moscow, that is considered to be a village. And we live on a beautiful piece of property with a forest behind us. There's nature out where we live. But as we get on the main road that goes into the city of Moscow, as we get closer to Moscow, the terrain begins to change. Suddenly, the road becomes denser with traffic. Things begin to look more industrial. And suddenly, we pass a sign that says Moscow, 10 kilometers. As we drive further, we see another sign that alerts us where we are in our journey toward the city. It says six kilometers to Moscow. Finally, we see another sign that says six kilometers to Moscow. And finally, we drive past a massive, massive sign that says Moscow. And when we pass that sign, we literally enter into the territory of Moscow. It alerts us that we're no longer traveling toward the city, but we have actually passed the limits, and now we have passed into the city of Moscow. That is the word sign which Jesus now uses in this text. So we find that the disciples were actually saying, Lord, tell us what are the prophetic markers? What are the signs we'll see in our journey toward the conclusion of the age? What will we see? How will we know where we are in our prophetic journey? And how will we know when we've crossed the line and we've really passed into the very, very last of the last days? And particularly, they said, what shall be the sign of the end of the world? The word end is a Greek word, suntelios. This word, suntelius, does not mean the abolition of a thing, but rather it is the wrap-up of the thing, the culmination of a thing. The King James Version says the end of the world, but there's a problem with that because the world will never end. The world is going to be changed, but it will never end. This is actually the Greek word, ionos. A better translation will be the end of the age. And this is the question which the disciples were asking Jesus. When exactly are these things going to take place? What? Lord, we want to know, in this private audience with you, tell us what other ears never hear, what exactly, concretely, explicitly, will be the sign, the road marker that will alert to us that we have no longer, we are no longer traveling toward the end times, that we've actually passed the border, we've entered into the end of the age, the wrap-up of this age. And then as you continue reading in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus begins to enumerate Many signs that we will see to alert us where we are in a prophetic journey toward the end. Many people say, and they're correct, that Israel is a major sign to tell us where we are in the end of the age. But Israel is just one of many signs. Jesus also says there'll be wars and rumors of wars. He also says that kingdom will rise against kingdom. That's a very interesting phrase in Greek because it describes Political philosophies, warring political groups, trying to squash warring political groups. It really describes unethical behavior in the political realm. Does anybody think we might be seeing that today on a level like we've never seen before? Jesus gives explicit signs. But when he begins his list, he begins with a sign that is something most of us don't really hear about as the primary sign to alert us that we've entered the end of the age. Jesus says in verse 4, take heed. The word take heed is the Greek word blepeto, which means look, listen. The words are so strong that it was almost like Jesus was reaching out to grab hold of the collar of the disciples. He is shaking them to get their attention. He says, take heed, blepete, listen to me, listen to me, perk up, hear what I'm about to tell you. And then he immediately says, take heed, that no man what? deceive you. Everybody say deceive. Well, in this particular verse, Jesus doesn't even use the normal word for deception. 
This is the Greek word planao. The word planao is a word that is used multiple times by Jesus and by the Apostle Paul, so we know exactly what this word planao means. And it was a word that was used in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament by the rabbis, so the usage of this word deceive is very well established. This word deceive, the Greek word planao, was specifically used to describe a person, a nation, a group of nations, or society as a whole that once walked on a very solid, well-known moral path. But now for some reason they have deviated from the path that is familiar to them. The path they have been upon is time-tested. It is trustworthy. They know it's safe to walk upon that path. But now this word deceive, the Greek word planeo, describes a person, a nation, nations, or society as a whole making the decision that we will depart from the route we have walked upon and we're going to go another direction. And this particular word deceive describes a person, a nation, nations, or society that has now veered from a path of moral uprightness and they are literally teetering on the edge of a dangerous and treacherous cliff. And in fact, the same word was used to describe an animal that so completely lost its way that it was unable to find its way back home. So now the disciples said, Lord, tell us, T, exactly, concretely, explicitly, what is the sign? What is the thing that we should be aware of more than anything else that will alert us that we have entered the very end of the age? And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you first, above all, up front, take heed, listen to me careful. When deception enters the human race, you will know that you're no longer passing toward the end, but you have passed the barrier, and now you have passed over into the very, very end of the age. Interesting that this word deceive is used by the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 11, where the King James translators properly translated it as the word delusion. It's talking about delusionary times, delusionary times. It is the same word which is used by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 when he says that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits. That word seducing is the same Greek word, spirits of delusion. So when you compare the writings of Jesus with the writings of Paul, you find at the very end of the age, when we've crossed that barrier into the very end of the age, we will enter into a time when delusionary spirits have been released into society. And people will begin to believe things that are not supported with correlating facts. People will believe things that are even diametrically opposed to science. People will listen to their feelings more than they will listen to facts. And delusion and lunacy will begin to work throughout the fragment, the fibers of society. Well, I don't think you have to be a genius to look at our world today and realize we're living in delusionary times. Those are the times that we're living in. And it's very interesting to me that Satan, at the very end of the age, is trying to assault man's image. Satan hates the image of God. We are made in the image of God. And every time Satan looks at us, who do you think he sees? He sees God because we are made in the image of God. And therefore now he is deluding people's minds with false thoughts, causing them to question everything about their own identity, even the way in which they are made. So that boys don't know if they're boys, girls don't know if they're girls, people are going through operations to try to alter themselves to make them into something else transsexual operations. Now, I have to tell you, I'm just going to be honest. May I be honest with you? We live in Russia, and in Russia, these things do not take place. In fact, our president, whom I know the West doesn't like, he has made a very strong statement. He has drawn the line. And you know what he recently said? I listened to the interview. He gave an interview with the Financial Times of London. And the Financial Times of London said, President Putin... What are you going to do with the LGBT 
Q movement in Russia. Would you like to know how he answered? He said, first of all, we're going to be compassionate. He said, people have a choice to do what they want to do, to believe what they want to believe. We're going to be compassionate. People have their rights. He said, however, as a nation, we have made a decision. These were, this is what he said. We are studying the United States. And we're watching how they are departing from biblical truth. And we as a nation have determined we're not going to go that way. We are returning to the foundation of the Bible. That is what our president said. I heard him say it. And so the reason I'm telling you that is because when Denise and I come to the United States, which is twice a year, and I know that you live in the United States, so you have a grace to live here. But it is really quite shocking to us. I'm sure it's shocking to you. But we've been gone 30 years. We've been gone 30 years. This is not the same country that we left 30 years ago. It is not the same country. There has been a departure from what it used to be. The spirits of delusion are working in society. We disembarked from our plane in Atlanta. We walked down the bridge to get onto the next aircraft. And as we walked down the bridge to get onto the next plane, the bridge was filled with photos of all kinds of families, this family and this family and this family and this family, and blended right into all the images that all the passengers walked by is a man with his shoulder laying over on the shoulder of another man holding hands. I said, Denise, the spirit of iniquity is at work. It is bombarding the minds of the general population. This is mental modification. This is exactly what Jesus prophesied. It is a worldwide deluge of delusion and deception trying to lead people off track. To believe that which does not even correspond with science. Now when you come to Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul describes amazingly what happens to a society or a nation that departs from God. So let's go there. Romans chapter 1. And I want you to see what the Apostle Paul said. Romans chapter 1 is one of the most brilliant things written in the New Testament. And in Romans chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 21. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Because that when they knew God, this word knew is the Greek word gnosko, not the word epignosko. Epignosko would describe intimate knowledge. That would be a word you would use to describe people who have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not the word that's used here. This is the word gnosko. It describes a God-fearing nation, a nation or a people that has a general respect for God, even if they don't know God personally, still they have a respect for that which is sacred or that which is holy. And now Paul says, because that when they knew God, when they had a general acquaintance of God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Notice the result of turning away from God. It doesn't make you intellectually bright. This verse says they became vain. In their imaginations, the word vain is the Greek word metaios. The word metaios describes something that is wasted, something that is tainted, something that is ruined. The word imaginations is the Greek word dialogismos, which is the very word for the human faculty to reason, reasonings, intellectual conclusions. And now Paul says, what a God-fearing nation, a nation who once had an understanding of God, when they begin to turn from him, ceasing to glorify him as God, and lose their thankfulness. By the way, when it says neither were thankful, it carries the idea of people who are no longer grateful for what they have, but now they have a feeling of entitlement, like they deserve everything they have. It is a loss of thankfulness. Paul says they become wasted, Matthias, they become tainted, their mind becomes affected, their mind literally becomes ruined, and he says specifically their imaginations, their intellect, their reasoning, their faculty of thinking, it literally becomes ruined, wasted, and their foolish heart is darkened. The word heart is the Greek word cardia, it's where we get the word cardiac arrest or 
A cardiac ward, cardia, describes the human heart. So you have to think for a moment, what does the human heart do? The human heart pumps, and it pumps, and it pumps, and it pumps. Your heart is pumping right now. We're all grateful that our hearts are pumping. And what do hearts pump? The heart pumps blood. How much of your body has blood? Every part of your body has blood. The heart is pumping and pumping and pumping and pumping blood throughout the entire system of your body. But now Paul uses this same idea to tell us when a society turns from God, they cease to glorify him as God, they cease to be thankful, they become entitled, their mind is affected. Well, of course, the Bible tells us clearly that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of Wisdom, And when you turn from wisdom, from God, even if you're intellectually bright, you begin to believe nonsense. You begin to believe nonsense. And Paul says even worse than that, not only is the mind affected, dialogismus, their faculties of thinking, but their foolish heart is darkened. And here he paints a picture of society and the heart of society. But rather than the heart of society pumping blood, the heart of society begins pumping darkness and pumping darkness and pumping darkness and pumping darkness until finally that darkness has infiltrated every part of society. This is the destiny of a nation who ceases to glorify God and refuses to be thankful. And then look at the next verse, professing themselves to be wise. It's amazing to me. The word professing really would be a better trans- translated, alleging, alleging, carrying on, boasting, proclaiming themselves to be wise. The word wise is the Greek word sophos. It describes those that are intellectually astute or those who think that they are intellectually advantaged above the rest of the population. So while their mind is being wasted and their heart is pumping darkness all the while, They're alleging, they're asserting, they're carrying on and even boasting that they are intellectually advantaged, they are the upper crust of society, they are the leaders of a new kind of a progressive thinking. And the Holy Spirit says, but let's look at it truthfully. Professing themselves to be wise, they became what? Fools. Well, what do you think that word fool is in Greek? It is a Greek word, moreno. Do you hear another word in that? If you think it's the word moron, you are correct. It describes those that are mentally ill or people that are mentally deranged. And here the Holy Spirit speaks straight. While they are alleging, asserting that they are the progressive thinkers of a new generation, their heart is pumping darkness. And the truth is, while they're claiming to be brilliant leaders, the truth is they become mentally ill, mentally deranged, They are morons. Anyone who could believe such conclusions are clearly moronic. That is a literal translation of that verse. Well, let's look at the next verse. And Paul continues. He says, And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man, to birds, to four-footed beasts, and to creeping things. Well, first of all, in verse 23, when he says, And changed... It really is the word to exchange, or it's making a swap or making a trade. It's putting two things on the table and choosing one over the other. So now we find in this verse, it's not that people are ignorant. They have a knowledge of God. They put God on the table. They put something else on the table. They weigh the two, and they choose to make a swap. Rather than go with God as they have in the past, they trade God in, and they choose something else. And what do they choose? An image made like to corruptible man, to birds, to four-footed beasts, and to creeping things. What in the world is this about? Verse 23 is a history of idolatry. Look at it. How did idolatry begin? Idolatry began with creeping things. All you have to do is take a cruise down the Nile and go into all the temples, and you see that in the very beginning of time when idolatry was first developing, they worshipped snakes, they worshipped beetles, they worshipped crocodiles, they worshipped creeping things. Then as time proceeded, a man's mind 
began to ascend. He no longer worshipped creeping things, but then man began to worship four-footed beasts, cats, cows, ox. And then as time went by, you come to the time of the Roman Empire, and during the time of the Roman Empire, the ultimate emblem to worship were birds. Man's mind descending higher and higher and higher. He begins with creeping things. Then he comes up to the level of four-footed beasts. Finally, his mind, his thoughts are going higher and higher. He begins to worship the birds of the air. And Paul says at the end of the age, it will no longer be creeping things, four-footed beasts, or birds, but man will worship man himself. He will become the center of his worship. Wow. Then he says in the following verse, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, through the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their own body between themselves. Well, most people have a problem with verse 24, and so do I. Because God never gives up on anybody. Can you say amen? God never gives up on anybody. There's never been a soul on the earth that God has given up on. But yet this verse says, God gave them up. Well, that is a King James translation. That is not what the Greek says. The Greek says, wherefore, wherefore, in light of this, in light of the fact that they want to worship themselves, in light of the fact they've traded God in for something else, in light of the fact they refuse to glorify him as God, they're no longer thankful, their mind has been affected, their heart is pumping darkness, they've become intellectual morons. Wherefore, in light of all of this, if this is what they really want, a better translation would be God released them. He released them. God will never make you worship what you do not want to worship. God is so gracious, and God is so good to honor your choice, God will let you do anything you choose to do. And in this particular case, it is the equivalent of God saying, if this is what you want, go get it. I will not restrain you. God released them. It's an amazing verse. And what did he release them to do? Look what the verse says. God released them. That's a little translation. To uncleanness. Interesting, the word uncleanness is a Greek word which describes something that's lewd, something that's filthy, something that's morally foul. He released them to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. So God said, if this is what is in your heart, I'm going to release you to the desires of your heart. I will not restrain you. If this is really what you as a people, as a society, as a nation want, go get it. And notice the result. To dishonor their bodies between themselves. That word dishonor is very, very important. It can mean to dishonor. But it is also the Greek word which means to misplace or displace or to put bodies in configurations where they do not naturally belong. And then he says, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. Verse 26, for this cause, God gave them up. The Greek again says, God released them. God refused to restrain them. If this is what you want, you can have it. You can do whatever you wish. God released them to what? Unto vile affections. Huh. The Greek literally says misplaced affections. Misplaced affections. It doesn't question that they had affection. Yes, they have affection, but it is misplaced affection. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly. The word unseemly describes that which is not natural. And receiving in themselves that recompense of their error that was meet. Look at verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. It's not that they didn't know God. They did know God. We saw that in verse 21. Because that when they knew God, when they had a general understanding of God, they chose this was no longer in sync with current fashion. This was no longer the way to go. So they've laid God aside. And now when we come to verse 28, Paul says, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. The Greek literally says God released them to a reprobate mind. What does this verse not say? 
It does not say God gave them a reprobate mind. It does not say that. It says God simply released them to the process. Well, what does it mean to be reprobate? I remember when I was a kid growing up, we didn't like somebody, we'd call them a reprobate. We didn't even know what it meant. We just knew it was really bad if you were a reprobate. But what does it mean to be a reprobate? What is a reprobate mind? Let me ask you, do you know what it means to be a reprobate? Somebody says, oh, to be a reprobate, that means you're twisted. To be a reprobate, you are perverted. Well, really? What does the word reprobate really mean? It's the Greek word adokimas. Dokimas describes something that is approved, something that is trustworthy. But if you add an A to the front of it, it's no longer dokimas, it's adokimas. It's a mind that once was trustworthy. It is a mind which once correctly thought, but you add an A to the front, now it is a mind that has been warped. It can no longer come to the conclusions it once came to. It has lost its ability to think clearly, or these are minds that have become so tainted that they're no longer able to perceive what is right and what is wrong. This is exactly what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, when Isaiah said, at the very end of the age, there will be a strange era when people will really believe good is evil and evil is good. When people's mind will become so affected that they will take light for darkness and darkness for light, they will take bitterness for something sweet and something sweet to be bitter. It describes a mind that is so modified, so modified, It is so affected by all the images and information that is bombarding it and bombarding it and bombarding it and bombarding it it that the mind has literally been refashioned, reshaped, so that it can no longer function the way that God meant it to function. It's still brilliant, but it's affected. Wow. We're living in a society today where people really say good is evil. If you stand by your Bible and proclaim what I'm proclaiming here tonight, people say you're narrow-minded, that you're bigoted, that you're a relic of the past. However, if you're open-minded and believe in all kinds of nonsense that doesn't even correspond with science, they will say you are the leaders of a new progressive wave of thinking. My friend, this is the day that we're living in. And this is only the beginning. Because Paul continues in the following verses and says... Being filled. Huh. In other words, this is just the tip of the iceberg. If this is not stopped, if this is not restrained, if repentance does not take place, the following is what will absolutely flood the society as the heart continues pumping and pumping and pumping darkness. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignant whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents without natural affection, covenant breakers, implacable, unmerciful. And look at this in verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God. In other words, these are people who grew up with a Bible in their hand. These are people who once went to church. These are people who once lived in a God-fearing nation. Even if they didn't embrace it all, they knew what the Bible said. They knew that. Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they who commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but endorse, that's little what the Greek says, endorse those that do the same with them. Hear Paul prophesying about what happens to a society that turns from God. Now, I've brought my book up here because I want to read to you a literal translation of these verses. Are you ready for this? Listen to this. This is a literal translation. Although society once had a general acquaintance of God, a general knowledge of God and a reverence for things related to God, a time came when people found it no longer fashionable to give God his due reverence. Rather than be grateful to God for their blessings, they forgot who blessed them and ceased to be thankful. They turned from God, and as a result, 
they begin to veer morally, which resulted in their thinking becoming laced with error that affected how they reasoned about everything. They alleged it was all right to believe things that are not supported by correlating facts and evidence, and eventually their conclusions became totally out of sync with reality. A normal heart pumps blood, but the heart of a God-rejecting society pumps and proliferates foolishness until it is filled with darkness that eventually spawns depravity, immorality, and godless behaviors. The so-called leaders of a God-rejecting society constantly assert that they are brilliant intellectuals of a new way of thinking, even though it's difficult to fathom how they could claim such a thing. Regardless of what they assert, their words and their ways of thinking make them sound like those who are mentally ill or mentally deranged. How could anyone think that what they propose is normal? Make no mistake about it. Those who think this way are clearly morons. That is a literal translation of these verses. Does that sound up to date to you? Now, Jesus said, we're going to see this in society. The Apostle Paul describes what happens when a society turns from God. But now turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, where Paul prophesies what's going to take place inside the church, inside the church at the end of the age. My friends, we need to keep our heads on straight regardless of the craziness that's happening around us. And when you come to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Now the Spirit speaks expressly. The word expressly is the Greek word retus. It's where we get the word rhema. But in this particular case, it means the Spirit speaks categorically. The Spirit speaks emphatically with no room for question or doubt. The Spirit speaks expressly, absolutely, emphatically, that in the latter times, the word latter is the word husteros, it agrees with Jesus said when he wrote about the wrap-up of the age. Paul's talking about the same thing, the wrap-up of the age, husteros, latter, the very end when there's no more, when you've come to the very end. He says, you will see even this inside the church. Some, praise God, he doesn't say everybody, but he says some, shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. He says some, the Greek means a notable sum, a notable sum. A notable sum shall depart from the faith. Well, first of all, the words the faith in Greek has a definite article, and that's very important to understand this verse. This is not faith for miracles. This is not faith for signs and wonders or faith for finances. It's not faith for things. Because it has a definite article, it means it is the faith or the clear, sound teaching of Scripture. Or here the Holy Spirit is prophesying at the very end of the age, the spirit of delusion that is in the world will try to worm its way into the church. Even the church will go through a period of mental modification, relaxing what they used to believe. And they will begin to depart from the Greek says, tes, pistes, from the clear, sound teaching of Scripture, from the fixed teaching of Scripture, they will begin to depart. It does not say they're going to reject it. There's a difference between rejecting and departing. If you reject, it's outright, it's deliberate, but departing is slow, it is methodical, and in fact, you can be in the process of departing and not even realize that you are in transition. And in fact, the word depart, the Greek word ephistomy, means to put space between yourself and something else. Here we have the picture of believers who once stood on the Word of God, believed the Word of God, built their lives on the Word of God, but now the times are changing. Society is thinking different, and rather than stand on the Word of God the way they once stood on the Word of God, a fistomy, they're beginning to put space between themselves and what they once believed to be true. And the reason they're putting space between themselves and their former position is because they're giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Giving heed is the Greek word prosecho, pros, 
means to lean towards something. The word echo means to hold or to embrace. Or now we find rather than hold on to a former position, rather than stand by the teaching of the Bible and say what the Bible says is correct, now they're beginning to question the Bible and actually back away from it, a putting space between them and their former position. Maybe they don't want to be called narrow-minded. Maybe they don't want to be called bigoted. Maybe they want to be open-minded. And so they turn, Prosecco giving heed, they begin to open their mind to a new reality in order to echo, embrace new concepts, to embrace new ways of thinking, to embrace modifications of the faith. They have become so open-minded until their brains fall out. And the Bible says working behind this are seducing spirits. The word seducing, again, the Greek word planeo, something that causes you to lead a well-established path, a path that is safe, a path that you know, a path that is tested by time, a path that is safe and secure. But these spirits cause you to depart from that path really in the guise of being open-minded, being progressive, considering new ideas, leaning toward it, embracing it. And Paul says, understand anything, anything that leads you away from the faith is the activity of seducing spirits. And then he goes on to call them doctrines of demons. Doctrines. The word doctrines is a Greek word didaskalia, from the word didasco, which means I teach. It's a play on words. It's connected to the word kalos, which means really good. You put the two words together, the word doctrines that is used here means really well-packaged information. Well-packaged information. In other words, we're talking about really good PR, a PR campaign. Rather than the devil show up, with horns on his head and a pitchfork in his hand, he begins to inundate people with didascalia, well-packaged, seducing information that causes them to question everything they once believed and that maybe we were wrong and we need to be a little more inclusive. Isn't that remarkable? So if you consider the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, the words of Paul in Romans chapter 1, and the words of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we have quite a picture of the end of the age. At the end of the age, Jesus says, take heed, blipete, stand up, perk up, listen clearly, because you'll know it's the end of the age when delusional activity has entered every realm of society. Paul says if society makes that choice to swap God in and to choose himself in his own thinking and to depart from that well-worn path that he once walked upon, his mind will become affected. The heart of society will begin to pump darkness and pump darkness and pump darkness until finally the conclusions of society will become moronic. And God will say, fine, go get it. And then when you come to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul, hmm, speaking in comparative terms, says, now the Spirit says this. If you think you're dealing with tough times now, listen to what the Spirit says about the end of the age. And Paul points 2,000 years into the future. And he says, the Spirit speaks retus, emphatically, categorically, without question, no room for doubt, Absolutely. That in the latter times, who status? When you've come to the very end, you'll know you're in the very, very end of the age because you will begin to see some even inside the church begin to put space between themselves at what once they allege to be truth. And they'll begin turning in a new direction, listening to, embracing, Doctrines of demons. One man has translated this newfangled ideas, 
I think that's a very good translation. But behind these ideas are the activity of demons. Now, there's a purpose in this. Why is the devil doing this? What is the purpose of the devil? Well, if you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, don't turn there, but I'm just going to tell you what it says. Paul writes again, and he says, at the end of the age, there will be a mutiny against the word of God. And the Bible says the world will become a lawless place. Everybody say lawless. What does that mean, lawless? Does that mean everybody is a criminal? Does that mean we're all part of outlaw gangs? What does it mean the world will become a lawless place? Lawless is the Greek word anomia. Nomia is from the word nomos. The word nomos describes well-established moral laws. Put an A on the front and guess what? It's a people who live with no established moral laws. Let's toss out everything we have embraced and let's construct a new world society. Let's not live by the rules and the standards which once dictated our world. Let's construct a new society with new morals and new ethics, a new day. And Paul clearly teaches in 2 Timothy, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that the very end of the age, there will be a worldwide casting off of the law of God. The Bible's a relic. It's a dinosaur of the past. You can't trust the Bible, unhitch from the Bible. You can't depend on the Bible. It doesn't agree with science. We're going a new direction. Why should I believe what the Bible says about morals? I don't agree with that. I don't feel that way. And people begin to put themselves in the center of their universe, and the Word of God begins to lose its voice. It becomes relegated to just another book among other holy books, just another book on the shelf. And the world becomes a place which casts off moral restraint, casts off the law of God. And when the world has finally been so modified that it becomes a lawless place. A lawless people will produce a lawless leader. He is called the man of lawlessness. He is otherwise known as what? The Antichrist. The Antichrist will be the byproduct of a lawless people. They will produce him. He will be their man who speaks their language, who has also cast off all old restraints. And the Bible says this mystery of iniquity has been working since the very beginning of time and it will continue to increase as we come closer to the end. Now what about us? What about us? Well, we have to make a decision to dig in. That we're going to dig our heels into the bedrock of the Bible, and we're not going to move from the teaching of the Bible. The Bible was the truth. The Bible is the truth. The Bible will always be the truth. We don't need a modification of Scripture. It was God's voice. It is God's voice. It will always be God's voice. Society can go every direction they want to go, but we're not going to go that direction. It may even mean that you may have to put up with some flack from society. Hey, it's okay. Aren't we stronger than that? We can handle that. We're the people of God. The Spirit of God lives in us. The church has dealt with flack from the very inception of the church. The American church just hasn't known much of it. But we may know it in the days to come. And Denise and I have made a decision, our church, our family, our ministry. We're not going to veer from what we know is true. What is tested, what is established, what is dependable. Ecclesiastes 8.4 says, where the word of a king is, 
there's power. There's power in that book that you hold in your hands. And the reason the devil wants to denigrate it and remove it is because he knows it is the one voice that has the power to permanently transform souls. And therefore, he wants to remove it to silence its voice because he's terrified of that book. So as we come to the end of my message tonight, and I'm finished, I want to encourage you. Even though we're living at the end of the age and we're seeing all kinds of interesting things in society, we can draw a line. We can say the lunacy is going to stay right over there. It's not coming in my house. And if you see a bunch of lunatics on television, you have a remote control. You don't have to sit in your house and say, oh God, what are we going to do? Hit the off button or change the channel. It's really very serious. Your mind is precious. Your mind is precious. Don't allow your mind to go through the world's mental modification. Don't submit yourself to that. Your mind is too precious for that. Your mind was not created to be reprobate. It was created to think right, to come to godly conclusions. But if you allow the world to pound your mind and pound your mind like plastic, it will begin to reform the way you see a lot of things. And your mind is too precious for that. So hold on to your Bible. And if you hear anybody, if you hear anybody leading you away from the teaching of the Bible, pray for them. And tell them farewell. You're not going to follow that. You're going to walk on a path that is tested. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus that the Holy Spirit told us about the end of the age. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have told us to get a grip on ourselves. Father, we thank you for the word of God. Help us to cherish it. Help us to love it. Help us to build it into every fiber of our being and to refuse to remove from it, Father. We thank you for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your divine work in us. And according to Ecclesiastes 8, 4, that you would release the word of the King in us. Let that power work in us, Lord. We thank you for this. In the precious name of Jesus. Thank you for watching and being a part of our online family. Subscribe to our channel for access to all of our videos and live services. You can also be notified when a new service becomes available if you ring the notification bell. We cannot do this without you. You can support this ministry and help us reach more people with the word by giving at reslife.org give. Thanks again for watching. Be blessed.